Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. This weekend is the fifth Sunday of the season of Easter, and we continue our Old Testament drought as we replace the Old Testament reading this week with the first reading of Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. For the epistle text, we are going to move into the end of the book of Revelation with chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. And then, as we move into the gospel reading, you have a choice. So your pastor can choose between John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, or John chapter 16, verses 12 through 22. For today's show, I'm going to go ahead and both of those, as neither of them are particularly long readings, and we don't see either of them again in the lectionary. So I want to to give you context around both of them. So we're going to start with Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now, I want to point out about this particular text that it's a repetition of chapter 10. So in chapter 10 is where you see Peter's vision of the blanket descending from heaven with the animals on it, and that vision, which we'll talk about today, teaching him the idea to not call unclean what God has called clean. Peter, rise, kill, eat. And as Peter comes out of that vision, there are men at the door seeking to bring him to Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, that he would go to Cornelius' house and baptize Cornelius and all of his household, speaking the gospel to them. Chapter 11 is a reflection on that. So Peter's already done it. He's gone to Cornelius' house, which is a no-go. By the way, we'll cover that too here today. Uh, A no-go for a Jew to enter the house of a Gentile. Instead, though, Peter has done it, and they... The rest of the Jewish people, Jewish Christians, are angered by this. The the circumcision parties will discuss, and Peter just recounts what happened. He does a fairly good job of it. It's a, a pretty clear repetition. He skips over a lot of the the speaking parts, the things that have been said. He doesn't recount blow by blow the words that he spoke or that Cornelius spoke or that Cornelius's men spoke. He does recount the the words that come from the Lord, however, in the text. So it's just one paragraph, all 18 verses together. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we'll discuss especially the, the reason for such repetition. Why include all of this again? Especially all of it again immediately after the original hearer would have just heard it. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, 
By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. To that I would like to say praise the Lord and hallelujah, as this is wondrous good news, and it it was prophesied, it was foretold in the Old Testament time and time again. But the Jews often considered their their faith very much exclusive, and Christianity is exclusive in a way. But what I mean by that is that it was only for this specific group of people. Only if you had a Jewish birth, if you were within the people of the Jews. And that's not even what you really see in the Old Testament. That if a sojourner came in and lived among them and wanted to be a part of them, wanted to celebrate their feasts and festivals to the Lord, he needed to be circumcised. But he could. He could be circumcised. He could be added in. And you see that numerous times. But then there's straight declarations that this promise of salvation is not just for the Jews. My favorite, and the clearest perhaps, or at least one of the clearest, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, where God the Father is speaking of the Savior that he is going to send. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of of the earth. So again, God is not limiting his work of his Christ, the work of his son to just a select few. Christ's death on the cross as we talk about often in our our churches is is a death that forgives every sin of every man, woman and child. It it doesn't matter if you lived prior to Christ and the cross or if you now live after Christ and the cross. It is by looking on that promise, it is by fixing your eyes on the Messiah, on Jesus. We have faith, we have hope that comes from him and comes from him alone. All right, so I mentioned a critical part of this conversation is going to be why repeat? If you've just had chapter 10, and chapter 10 was lengthier because, again, it included the speeches, the dialogue between Peter and Cornelius, why again? And I think this is, it's really that crucial turning point 
you could say between Judaism and Christianity, arguably that happened at the time of the cross, the resurrection, and then Pentecost. But even within Christianity, the realization that the church comes to know that the gospel is truly for all people, that Christ's death, his sacrifice, is not just for some, but for all, and that they would take that good news, they would take that message out into the various communities. This is why Jesus, before he ascended, said that they would be his witnesses, this is Acts 1 verse 8, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So they're coming to realize this, and that that shift of their mindset, that shift of thinking of who the gospel is for is so prominent. I, I believe that's why we get the double the double usage right here in the middle of the book of Acts. So Peter has done this, and that's chapter 10. Now verse, verse 1 of chapter 11, Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So the word, the event of what Peter did with Cornelius at Caesarea, that has gone out to the church, and they've heard this news. I, I would call it good news, and some of them heard it that way, some of them not so much. And so Peter, as he returns to Jerusalem, it says up, it's actually down in terms of a map, but it's up because Jerusalem was the highest elevation point in that that area. You built your cities on on high hills because that was easier to defend if an enemy army was attacking. They'd have to rush up a hill, which puts them at a disadvantage. So Peter went up to Jerusalem, and the circumcision party criticized him. The circumcision party is a reference to a group of, I would say, Jewish believers, not necessarily non-Christians, but these are Christians who in the very early days of the church are still clinging to the Old Testament laws, that the idea of circumcision was the entry point into covenant relationship with God. And so they believe that in the New Testament era, and the time of the church here, even though, yes, Jesus has done all of this, that you still need to be circumcised to be part of it. They don't recognize yet that circumcision has been eliminated. It is no longer the mark of the church. That's going to be baptism, which does show up here in this text. And so that's a very early argument and it's a, a problem that has to be wrestled with. It'll be wrestled with at the Council of Jerusalem, which is a few chapters later in the book of Acts. Paul is going to very specifically have to take up challenging Peter on this idea of circumcision because Peter had withdrawn from the Gentiles that he was working with. He's going to have to write about it to various churches like the Christians who are in Galatia. So it's a major issue for the first century Christian church. Oftentimes, even as Paul's out on his missionary journeys and he he goes to a Jewish synagogue because that's where they have the word of God, the Old Testament, and he shows them how it points to Jesus and many end up believing. When he leaves that city, uh, a group like this, uh, they're usually called the Judaizers, they will come in behind Paul and they will undermine the freeness of the gospel and say that if you really want to be part of the church, you have to do this, this, and this. And circumcision would be on that list uh, of the 
the legal commandments that they would seek to lay upon these new Christian converts in those various cities. And so Paul had to wrestle with that quite a bit. All right, so they say, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. What's the problem with this? The issue here is actually part of the the history of the Jewish people and their culture. Jews were not allowed to eat with Gentiles. Okay, that's not even the fairness of it. Jews were not allowed to go into the home of a Gentile to eat. Let me phrase it that way. You don't know what's happened in the home. And this was a big part of it. I mean, the idea of, of abortion is such a commonplace thing in 21st century America. Um, but just like birth didn't happen outside the home. I mean, you didn't go to a hospital to have a baby like we do today. Just as then you wouldn't go for an abortion, you wouldn't go to a clinic or something like that for an abortion either. These things happened in the home. And the the Jewish faith saw these things, uh, saw the idea of abortion as being an evil, and you could not know if there had been an abortion in that Gentile's house, and if you were to go into that house, that house is unclean, that could render you unclean. That's one example. There were other examples of things that the Gentiles would do and practice, including various other kinds of worship and various rituals that would make you unclean. So as a Jew, you simply did not enter their home out of concern of becoming unclean yourself from entering an unclean house. That's just part of their culture, and Peter has gone against that. So that's part of the challenge here. But then Peter walks them through it. He walks them through everything that has just happened. He reflects upon it in an orderly fashion. So he he takes the story and summarizes it in the order that it occurred. So first, he announces that he was in the city of Joppa. Now, Joppa is a... I guess we'd call it a port city. It's on the Mediterranean Sea, probably about 35 miles northwest of where Jerusalem is. And outside of this account, probably its best claim to fame, scripturally speaking, is the account of Jonah. That this is where Jonah goes in order to find a ship so that he can head anywhere but Nineveh. And he finds a ship that is bound for Tarshish, which is at the opposite end, all the way west across the Mediterranean Sea, and what we would think of as Spain today. So he's in Joppa, he's praying, and in a trance sees a vision. That word trance is not all that common in scripture, and I don't want to put too much into what the word itself means. We're going to focus instead on the word vision, which is one of the ways that the Lord has revealed himself to his prophets of old and chooses in this moment to reveal himself even to Peter. And in this vision, what does the Lord show him? He shows him basically a giant blanket, a great sheet descending from heaven, and on it, animals. Beasts of prey, reptiles, birds, and so forth. This is not going to be the point of the vision, but I've often wondered if this vision gives us an insight into the idea of animals being in paradise someday. Um, People often ask and wonder about their, their pets that have passed away, or even just more generically, if there will be animals in heaven. Now, we can't 
answer a whole lot about that, to be quite honest. Uh, the scriptures do not talk about animals the same way that they talk about us. And that's fair because the scriptures aren't written to animals. The scriptures are written to us to teach us about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. But Jesus Christ's death on the cross, his blood was not shed to forgive the sins of animals. His blood was shed to forgive us. So while I don't normally encourage people to think about their pets being in paradise because we just don't know that, a text like this does give us a little encouragement that there might be animals in paradise. Ultimately, what would give us that idea the best would be to simply go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and see God's creation, which is the only moment of perfection that we know of in history. Paradise will be perfect. And so the Garden of Eden at first was perfect as God had made it. And what was there? Animals. So, yeah, most likely uh, paradise will have animals in it. You could go to the prophecies of restoration and the prophets, like a, a prophecy in Isaiah talking about the, the wolf and the lamb lying down together, or the lion eating straw like an ox. Those kinds of prophecies would also give us that kind of encouragement to think of paradise as not just a floating in the clouds, as we're going to see actually in our Revelation passage here in just a little bit, but paradise as a new heaven and a new earth. All right, so the voice, which would be God speaking to Peter, tells Peter to rise and kill and eat. So take these animals from this blanket, slaughter them, eat them. And Peter at first rejects this. His qualm, or his claim, is that nothing unclean has ever entered his mouth. Leviticus chapter 11 indeed sets aside the rules for the Jewish people, the people of God in the Old Testament, about what animals they can and what animals they cannot eat. In reality, the Old Testament never specifically says why. Right? The, Lord, the Lord simply sets up a law for his people to follow. I mean, you could read into it if you want about how certain animals might have made them sick and maybe God was protecting them from something like that. But again, ultimately the idea is that God's people were called to be holy. They were called to be set apart. Their kingdom was not to look like the neighboring kingdoms. Their lives were not to look like the lives of the people and the nations around them. And so if you don't eat an animal that this other kingdom eats, they're going to wonder why. The set-apartness was a display of who God is and what God was doing to care for his people. And that does come in in what Peter said. Nothing common or unclean has entered my mouth. It's not just unclean versus clean, but also holy versus common. And that's going to come across in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10. So chapter 11 of Leviticus is good to read about the animals that are clean and unclean. But here's Leviticus 10, 10. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. So the things that are holy, or one of the ways we define that word holy in, in theology is to be set apart. The people are to be set apart. They're not to be like everyone else around them, as we were just discussing. So that's the distinction from common. Nothing common, nothing that other nations would eat, that the Jews were not supposed to eat. None of that has entered into Peter's body. He's never broken that commandment of the Old Testament before. 
But God reiterates, tells him again to do it. I mean, Peter says this happened three times, but God says that very specifically, what God has made clean, do not call common. And Peter, throughout the course of chapter 10, as this was unfolding, came to realize that this was more than just about animals. Although there is a, a part of this that is about animals as well and about dietary restrictions and such. The Old Testament dietary laws in the book of Leviticus are overturned. This is a common one that you hear today um, from atheists or people in our culture who are seeking to use those Old Testament scriptures to undermine the Christian arguments of the day. So the idea, for example, that homosexuality is against the way God has created his creation to work, they'll say, well, that's a law that you find in Leviticus, and then they'll go to the law in Leviticus about how we're not to eat shellfish, and they'll make those two the same thing. Those do both appear in Leviticus. They have a point on that, but what they don't recognize is the idea that, in fact, Jesus has overturned the food laws. We see that here very specifically in Acts 10 and 11, but we also see it in Mark chapter 7, verse 19, where you read the words, Thus he declared all foods clean. Everything. Jesus' point in that Mark 7 section is that what you eat is not what makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart. The sins of man as we try to rebel against God. That's what makes us unclean. And so this, this has been changed, again, the, the distinction being made from the old covenant to the new covenant in this way. So Peter, recognizing now, though, that this is not just about animals, it's not just about what he can eat, but it's more than that. It has to do with people. Now, don't rise, kill people, but don't call people unclean that the Lord has called clean. That's the connection point that Peter does come to realize. And so this Roman centurion, Cornelius, would be an example of that. The Jewish people, and we see it at the start of our text today, they saw him as unclean. He's uncircumcised. He's a Gentile. You can't go into his house. But Peter does. And Peter not only goes into his house, he takes the gospel into his house. He proclaims the gospel to Cornelius and to all those that Cornelius had gathered with him, and they're baptized. They believe. Again, this is the reason for the repetition. This is such a crucial turning point, both in, in the idea of Judaism and in Christianity itself, as this... I don't necessarily want to call it a new faith. It's, it's what Judaism was meant to be, might be a way to say it. That those who hold to the Jewish faith, they were looking forward to a Messiah who would come, and the Messiah came, and they missed him. But the Christians have seen the Messiah. They trust in this Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Peter continues explaining what happened as he had the vision, the blanket is drawn back up into heaven, and at the very moment, three men arrived who have come from Caesarea. Now I want to take a moment on this Caesarea idea. Which Caesarea is this is an important question, as there are many cities by the name of Caesarea. Caesarea Philippi is probably one of the more prominent ones in the New Testament outside of this one. This is not Caesarea Philippi. The reason for it is Caesarea, 
Caesar, of Caesar. And so somebody wanting to gain Caesar's favor might build a community and do so in Caesar's honor and even name it after him. So that's going to be the the reason for many cities in that Roman Empire ending up with this Caesarea name attached to them. This would be the Caesarea that is sometimes called Caesarea Palestinae or Caesarea Maritima or Taima, however you pronounce that. And it is located about 53 miles to the north northwest of Jerusalem along the Mediterranean Sea. That would put it probably about 20 miles or so, 15 to 20 miles further north on the Mediterranean Sea line from where Joppa is, that Peter's going to make this trip with these men. You know, 15, 20 miles, let's just take 20. If you're traveling at a, a decent clip, three miles an hour, that's a over a six-mile walk. So that's a, that's a decent day's trek if you're just doing it on foot. There's no mention that these men brought camels or anything like that that would have made the journey faster. A camel could probably cover that in less than an hour. This Caesarea is actually the capital of the region. Judea actually becomes a Roman province in the year 6 AD, and at that point, this city, this Caesarea, is established really as the civilian and military capital of that Roman province. And this is why Pontius Pilate is actually going to have that as his base of operations. He has come down to Jerusalem uh, at the time of the crucifixion because it's the Feast of Passover. It's a mess of a, a gathering of Jews and often trouble for Rome. So he's there to help curtail that. And we also see then the idea that a Roman centurion and his household are living here in this city because, again, it's a capital. It's an important place for for the Roman province. It stays an important place. It, be, it remains a prominent city even after the rise of Christianity uh, as things change throughout the Roman Empire. Really, even, I guess, with the fall of the Roman Empire, it still remains a major Christian city until... Islam destroys it in 640. And then the Christians and the Crusades reclaim it in 1101. It's destroyed again in the 13th century by a group called the Mamluks, and it has never been rebuilt since that point. The The city remains, the ruins are actually still visible today. They were unearthed uh, probably a couple of generations ago in the mid-20th century, and they're now part of what is called the Caesarea National Park. So if you ever do a Holy Land visit, you could actually see this location over there. And Philip the Deacon is is known for having gone there and lived there and shared the gospel there. Uh, Paul's going to spend some time there himself as well. So it's got a lot of connection points in in the New Testament and the early history of the Christian church. But what I want to focus on is verse 12 here. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. So again, that's the meaning of the vision. It's why we're getting this repetition. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Galatians 3.28 is going to speak that way. There, There is no Jew or Gentile, nor male or female. A lot of people misunderstand that today and take that to be God just wiping out all this stuff. Uh, Galatians 3 is about salvation. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile when it comes to salvation. It matters if you trust in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman when it comes to salvation. It matters if you trust in Christ. That's the point of Galatians 3. And 
so we see here that Peter's going to go and he takes with him six brothers, so six other of these Christians, and they appear to be, the way Peter phrases that here in verse 12, they appear to be with him now as he gives this account to the, the circumcision party and those in Jerusalem. They accompanied him, so they are witnesses of these things. That means he has the testimony not of two or three, which the Old Testament law required, but six. So that's at least twice, maybe three times as many as were necessary. He's got great attesting to this account. We entered the man's house. That's the point of contention that was brought up at the beginning of the text. Verse 13, Cornelius recounted to them how he had been visited by an angel. Cornelius in chapter 10 does not use the word angel, but he describes a a figure that is dressed in, in shiny clothing, and that is often something that's going to inform us as Christians reading the New Testament that we're hearing of an angel. Send to Joppa, bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Now, we do learn in the account in chapter 10 that Cornelius is a God-fearing man, and he actually has a great reputation among even the Jewish people. So, this is not like an angel just visited somebody randomly. Cornelius was praying, and his prayer was heard, and God is going to bring him into the fold. He's going to share with him the good news of Jesus Christ, and not just with him, but also with his entire household. So as Peter goes, it's not just Cornelius he ends up speaking to, but the household, which is not just the way that we assume the word household today. In our culture, we think of households as these small groups. So in my case, it would be my wife and I and our four kids. In other cases, it might just be a single person, or it might be three people that live in a household. We think of immediate family kind of context. Ancient world, that's not so much, especially not the way the scriptures talk about it. Cornelius's household would have been him and his family, so a wife and children, but it also would have included his servants and their families. It may have included even other Roman soldiers uh, that were underneath him in the army who served with him if they had just come to Caesarea and needed a place to stay, for example. So his household's going to be larger. And through his leadership as a spiritual head of his family, of his house, they have come to fear the Lord. They've come to know the Old Testament and to trust in that Old Testament God that is Yahweh. And now they get to see. Yahweh very specifically sends them someone who can show them how all of that Old Testament was pointing forward to this Savior who has come, to this Jesus Christ. So that's what's going to happen. Peter shares that gospel, and as he does, the Holy Spirit comes on them just as it came on him at the beginning. That would be a reference to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts 10, we do read Cornelius and his household started speaking in tongues. There was much praising of God in that place. Peter, as an apostle, was given the ability to do miracles. And this is a good thing. And so as the Holy Spirit came upon these new Christians, they were given that opportunity to do something that was on the miraculous side as well. I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, and so he goes to 
a message Jesus declared right before he ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So with the end of this text, Peter simply recognizes, if God chose to give these Gentiles this gift, who was he, Peter, who was he to stand in the way of God giving a gift to who God wants to give a gift? That's almost... um parable of the workers in the vineyard like as the the men come throughout the day uh, some started at the heat of the day and others come at the end of the day and they only work the one hour and at the end of the day they pay the ones who worked an hour first and they get a denarius the ones come who worked the whole day and they only get a denarius and they're upset by it and the the master the the one who symbolizes the lord in the parable ends up saying something along the lines of Can I not be generous with what is mine? God can give a gift to whoever he wants to give a gift, and so he has. Again, in Jesus Christ, as the gospel is open to all people. So when they heard this, they fell silent, and instead of continuing to badger Peter about what he had done, instead they glorified God. They praised him, they lifted him up, To the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And again, amen to that and hallelujah. This brings us now to our epistle reading, which is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. We've skipped a whole bunch. So we're in Revelation six weeks in a row, but we move from chapter 1 to 5 to 7, and then we get two weeks in chapter 21, and then we have a week in chapter 22. So we skip the middle uh, as we we just jump to the end. I mean, really, that's what this is, is this is a jumping to the end. Chapter 20 is going to end with the judgment on the last day, even of the, of the devil and his army. And chapter 21 then shows us paradise. Now, I'm going to say that if you just do verses 1 through 7, you miss something here. Verses 8 through 10 are extremely important to understanding verses 1 through 7. So I don't want to wrap up today without having read those verses as well. They're crucial to understanding the picture. So I think, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you verses 1 through 7, which is the text for the weekend, and then I'm going to reflect on it just very briefly. And then I'm going to read verses 8 through 10 also so you can see what you've missed, and then we can unpack the text rightly. Let's, let's give it a go that way and see how it goes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, 
and he will be my son. As you read those words, the focal point for many is going to be on the new Jerusalem, this holy city that comes down from heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband, and that this is where God will dwell with man. And so we start looking at this as this this new city, and we start thinking of paradise as being a city. And I, I want to challenge that by reading to you from the rest of, well, not the rest of the text, but just the next three verses. Verse 8 does not connect to that, actually. Verse 8 connects to what is missing. And um, I'm going to read verse 8 because it gets skipped. Let me me cover what I mean by that real quick. So next week, we're going to read from Revelation 21 again. We're going to do verses 9 through 14 and then verses 21 to 27. So verse 8 does not get read. But it's important, again, for understanding this picture of paradise. So verses 8 through 10. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the, great, in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. There's more to that, but I'm going to stop there. That gives you enough of a glimpse to understand what the new Jerusalem, what this holy city really is. As the angel says to John, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, which is the church, right? Jesus is the groom and the church is his bride. We are the bride of Christ. That is New Testament language through and through. And then in verse 10, he carried me away and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, the holy city of verse 2 is not a city. It's a people. It's us. It is the bride of Christ. And this is what you miss if you chop off verses 9 and 10 from the text. So that's why I wanted to include those, because that gives us the ability to see the fullness of what John is seeing here, what he's sharing with us from the Lord. So let's, having that now in mind, let's go back and unpack the text together. Then I saw, let's start of verse 1 here, start of chapter 21, this, this then is after chapter 20, after the defeat of Satan, after the judgment day has come. And so we're now moving into, I can't say this is the last vision because chapter 22 will use that kind of language as well, um, but we're moving into the end. I mean, this is now paradise that we're looking at in the text. John sees a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is a crucial moment in Christianity as well. The idea that there is a new heaven and a new earth. That this broken world in which we live, this this world that we broke because God entrusted it first to us and then we entrusted to Satan, the crafty serpent in 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 the garden who came in to deceive, we handed it to him. Creation was ours to care for, and as its caretakers, we broke it. That continues to be true, right? Think of all the ways that we abuse God's creation even to this day. But the picture here 
is of a new heaven and a new earth, and this is not the only spot that we see it. So if this was only spoken in Revelation, we might think of it as a symbol and try to figure out, okay, what does this symbol mean? Because Revelation does do that. It is a prophetic book that uses a lot of symbolic language. But this, again, is not the only place. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says Yahweh, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Second Peter chapter 3, it could be just verse 13 if you want to pick up on that, but I'm going to start at verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. From the words of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Luke is also going to pick up on that idea in Luke 16, verse 17. But here's another one. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, Jesus said to his disciples, Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. Mark chapter 13, 31, Luke chapter 21, 33 are both going to echo that same idea from Jesus as those three gospel accounts share a lot of the same uh, events in the life of Jesus. This is a common picture then at that point. You don't have it just once. I mean, that's what, five, six, seven, eight, and including this nine times in Scripture. This idea shows up at the very least. Those are prominent texts. I would encourage you to pick a favorite of those and memorize it. This is the hope. This is what you and I are looking forward to. Now, we may not be able to describe it. I don't know what this new heaven and new earth are going to look like. We don't because God has not told us. He has not shown it to us, although I guess he has shown it to John. But John doesn't record that kind of detail for us because the focus is going to be on verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We'll come back to that. So the idea of a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven, the first earth have passed away. This could be a complete destruction. It could be that this earth that you are currently sitting on, unless you're listening to this on an airplane, in which case it's the earth that you are flying on as you fly through the heavens, that this earth and this heaven will be gone that they will be no more and that God is going to form new ones. That could be this new sort of language here. The other way to look at it is a, a reforming as we think of even ourselves, that we are new creations. We are new creatures through the waters of baptism. That would be the language Paul uses in 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In that sense, uh, it would be the idea of God reforming 
as uh, the prophet Jeremiah talks about the how the potter can form the clay however he wishes. And so if, it, if the clay is somehow messed up, he can, he can just rework it into something new. And so it could be that this new heaven, this new earth, is going to come about in that sort of a way. Science fiction lovers would use the word terraforming, uh, the idea of completely reforming a, a planet's environment, atmosphere, etc., in order to be sustainable for life. It could be that. That this current creation is remade to be perfect again. God can do it. He can do either of those things. And there's there's not enough in Scripture for us to be able to speak with guaranteed certainty of how exactly this is going to play out. Again, the, the picture is that we are going to fix our eyes ultimately on verse 3. So we got to get through verse 2 first. Actually, we have to finish verse 1. The sea was no more. In the Old Testament especially, the, the idea of the sea is a thing of evil. It's a thing of darkness. It is the, the place where the dead will come from. You think of the sea, you might think of fear. You might think of a storm on a sea. You might think of tsunamis. You might think of drowning. The, the picture, the image of the sea, even in the book of Revelation, picks up on that. And so it talks about paradise as having no sea. Again, Revelation symbolic. So this could be that there is, there is no deep depths of something that needs to be feared. There is no deep darkness or anything like that. Or it could simply be straightforward and true that when we get to paradise, there's no sea. Because you and I can't live on the sea. And we cannot maintain the creatures that are there. And the Lord is giving us a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, so that we might do what he first made us to do, which is to praise him and care for his creation. Genesis 1, verse 28. The be fruitful and multiply part will be gone. But have dominion over the, the earth. So no sea, and we're going to see no sun as well uh, in, in the idea of the text here in chapters 21 and 22. That'll come up twice. Verse 2 then, so this new city, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Beautiful. Uh, ready excitement, right, for, for the life that is about to begin together, this new life, this marriage there's been some of that language, the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, part of the Revelation language in the last couple of chapters, chapter 19 here. So Jerusalem was the capital city of God's people. It was the place where he had promised that he would dwell with them in their midst, his temple, his house, that he would live there, and from that throne he would speak to them. And so it is again in paradise he will dwell right there in the midst of his people, and he will speak to us. And this is good news. So that's verse 3. The dwelling place of God is with man. Emmanuel, the promise from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, of the Savior who would be named Emmanuel, which means in Hebrew, God with us. He is with us. He is with us forevermore. 
and we will be with him, just as in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin in the garden. God was walking in the garden. He came looking for them. In the cool of the day, he walked in the garden. They could have walked with God. In paradise, we will get to walk with God. Paradise is not a a disembodied floating in the clouds up in the sky somewhere. That's not the promise. The promise of Christianity, the promise of the scriptures, the promise of Jesus is that he has risen. And because he has risen, he will raise you also. And you will live body and soul reunited together. You will live with him in paradise. It's why I don't like to use the word heaven because the Christian connotation of heaven today is so distorted. Yes, we have a hymn, Heaven is Our Home. Heaven is our home because it's where Jesus is, and Jesus is our home. Our citizenship is in heaven, is language from the New Testament. Yeah, it is, because again, Jesus is there. That is our home. Our home is Christ. It's where God will dwell with us. And so, in the temporary, in the moment, that's heaven. It's the throne room of God. It's where he is seated at the right hand of his Father on high. But the day comes when Christ returns. He is preparing a place for us that we will be with him where he is, John 14. And and when that day comes, it's not going to be, again, disembodied. We will be raised. And we will live forever in the new heaven and the new earth that God is creating. And to stress that a little bit, if... If we were to be living with God in heaven, why would he create a new earth? Just something to ponder as you look at the text. Now, he will dwell with them. They will be his people. He will be their God. That's a common Old Testament refrain of the Old Testament covenant. It's first said specifically in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, but it's said again and again. This is the beauty of of faith, that he is our God, he will care for us, and that we will be his people. We will serve him night and day in his temple, as you will also see here in the book of Revelation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That was first said actually in chapter 7, verse 17 in Revelation, which we had just last week together. So it's the picture that God is caring for us. You might think of the spouse the husband whose wife is crying and he wipes away her tears as he comforts her. So God, so Yahweh, so Jesus comforts us and takes away our tears. But also, as a part of that, he takes away all the things that would make us cry. Death is not there. Mourning, so grieving over loss, is not there. Crying is not there. Pain is not there. For, because the former things have passed away. The things that sin has caused, the consequences of sin in this life are gone. They've passed away. Paradise knows not such things. This is, by the way, why I wanted you to also consider verse 8, but we're only at verse 5, so we'll come back to that. So verse 5 here, God the Father seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. So again, former things have passed away. First earth, first heaven passed away. God's making something new, just as he has made us new. And he is going to continue to 
reform, transform us, glorify us in the resurrection as we are lifted up in our, what will now become imperishable, immortal bodies. He tells John to write this down because these words are trustworthy and true. So this is, this is the truth. It is trustworthy. That means you can bank on this. You can put your hope in this. And as Christians, we do. I mean, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. It's why he could endure all the things that he endures, all the wicked, evil things, all the suffering that was afflicted upon his body in this life, because he knew that if, if he was killed, God would raise him from the dead. This is our hope. This is who we are. This is where we look, is that we get to live with Christ forever in the place he prepares for us. And he said to me, verse 6, it is done. You might link that to it is finished, the words of Jesus on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 30. But also, don't miss the connection to Revelation 16, verse 17. So in verse 16 of Revelation 16, the devil had gathered his forces together at Armageddon to make war against God. That war never happens. Verse 17, God simply declares it is done. And Satan and his army is judged, condemned. Here he says it again. It is done. He has, at this point, in chapter 21, verse 6, he has made all things new. And we enter into a state of perfection that is never going to be undone because it is done. A similarity to this kind of thinking is the devil's rebellion against God, which we don't know a whole lot about, but it seems to be that the devil and really all angels had that one moment of rebellion that they chose to either remain in God's house, remain in his service, or leave him and try to make do on their own. And there's no more rebellion there. At that point, it seems that the Lord freezes things, that either they're angels or they're demons. They either serve him and they live with him forever, or they don't. That appears to be, again, the same kind of picture of paradise, that there is, at that point, a, a freezing, if you want to phrase it that way, that we are, we're either in hell or we're in paradise, and those places are permanent. There's no crossing between them. The people in hell are not going to then be saved, nor are the people in paradise going to sin and fall away from God. It is fixed at that point. It is done. And God can say so because he is the Alpha and the Omega, that is the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So it would be like in English saying A to Z, he is the beginning, he is the end. He is all things. And then he promises to the thirsty, I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. That's a reference to John chapter 4, the promise that Jesus makes to the woman at the well of living water that would well up within her to life everlasting. It also connects back to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, where the prophet Isaiah writes, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In a time of inflation, buying milk and wine and, and such things without price sounds wonderful. 
in paradise it will indeed be wonderful as we come before the Lord and he will provide for us daily and richly and we will have no needs. We will not be thirsty in paradise because the Lord will have met our need before it even arises. We will not hunger in paradise because, again, he will have met our need before it even arises. Verse 7, the one who conquers, and that's you, that's me, will have this heritage. Um, I'm not sure why ESV translated it that way. The word is not a noun, it's a verb. The one who conquers will inherit these things, would be the better way to have translated that into English. And I will be his God, he will be my son. You could talk about verse 7 as in the Trinity, Father and Son. Jesus is the one who conquered, and so he is the heir of all things. But we also know that this extends to us. And this is Romans chapter 8. Many of you might be familiar with that passage uh, that says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's Romans 8.37. So we are the conquerors. We will inherit these things as co-heirs with Christ. He is our God. We are his children forevermore. Now, I did read to you verse 8 as a contrast that there are those who will not be in paradise. And again, it's the ones who have caused the church to suffer. This is part of the victory celebration and declaration that God is making in the text. Is, and really, by the text, I mean the whole book. Revelation is written to a suffering church. The ones who are persecuting them, the ones who are causing them to suffer, the ones who are rejecting God and continuing this war against him in this place, they won't be there. They will not cause death. They will not cause pain. They will not cause you any more suffering. This is, in a way, an answer to the Revelation 6 moment where you have the martyrs under the throne crying out basically how long until God avenges them, the shedding of their blood. On the day of judgment, that will be done. So again, I I carried you all the way through verse 10 because it, it helps us see this is about the bride of Christ. This is about you and me. It's about the church. That the Lord is making us his dwelling place, and he will dwell with us forevermore. As is pretty normal for me these days, I left myself little time for the gospel reading, uh, but we can we can still, I think, cover both of them. I'll try and give about five minutes to each and just clue you in on what's going on here. So we'll start with John 13, verses 31 to 35. We'll also do John 16, verses 12 to 22, as those are optional for your, your pastor to pick and choose from. And again, neither of these shows up anywhere else in the lectionary. That's why I want to include them. I shouldn't say that. John 13, 31 to 35 can be, is a reading for Maundy Thursday. Because that's where the name for Maundy Thursday comes from, is from that reading. So I'm going to read that one to you briefly here. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So, verse 31, when he had gone out, refers not to Jesus, but to Judas Iscariot. So this Actually, both of these texts are going to be within the, the idea of the Last Supper. On Maundy Thursday, as the disciples gather with Jesus in that room 
where the Passover has been prepared for them. They're having the meal together. Judas has now left the table. He's gone out to do what he has to do, and Jesus continues to teach. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Son of Man, favorite title for himself, uh, glorified, lifted up. He's lifted up on the tree. He's glorified in his death on the cross because it is what we look to see, right? To glorify is to lift up so that it can be seen. Jesus is lifted up on the cross for us to see, and even today we still we still look to Jesus on the cross, and it's been nearly 2,000 years. So in the glorification of the Son of Man, the Father, God, is glorified in him. So in the work of the Son, in his death, in his resurrection, in his gifts of forgiveness and life, God the Father is also glorified. Now, God, is not, God the Father is not lifted up on a tree. God the Son is. But God the Father is glorified because the Son's work points us to the Father. The Son's death and resurrection gives us forgiveness in life so that we get to live with God the Father forevermore in his kingdom. It glorifies him in that way. And so verse 32, just as God the Father is glorified by the Son, in turn, God the Father will also glorify God the Son. And he does this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, by raising the Son from the dead and then also subjecting all things beneath the Son. Jesus has authority over everything. And he said that in Matthew 28 verse 18 as well. He will glorify him at once. That is, without delay. You might think here of Jesus' words to the thief on the cross at the end of Luke's gospel, Today you will be with me in paradise. The Lord, God the Father, does not leave his son in the grave. He does not leave him dead, but he instead raises him from death to life in order that he then may also raise you and me from death to life. So, verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. So Jesus referring to, and we're going to see this more fully in the chapter 16 passage, he's referring to his death there, that he's only got a little bit more time before he's killed. And at this point, it's a matter of just hours. They're going to look for him. They're going to try to follow him where he goes, but they can't. Peter claims that he will follow Jesus to death, but he doesn't. And most of the disciples are nowhere to be seen when Jesus is on the cross in the gospel accounts. Only John in John's gospel. But even he doesn't mention himself by name. We only know he's there because Jesus says to the disciple whom he loved, which is John's way to refer to himself, that this he should take Mary as his mother and Mary take him as her son. So, where I'm going, you cannot come is a reference to Christ glorifying death on the cross. Then verse 34 is the reason we have this on Maundy Thursday. A new commandment I give to you. New commandment in the Latin is mandatum novum. Mandatum is where we get that word mandate from in English, but it also, mandatum, if you write it out, M-A-N-D-A-T-U-M, you'd see that M-A-N-D in the, the word Maundy. Mondi comes from this. Mondi is, is that mandate word, a commandment, novum, new in, in Latin. So a new commandment I give you. Mondi Thursday is called basically commandment Thursday, if you were to not use the more Latin term there. 
And it's for this reason Jesus said these words on that day. What's the new commandment? It's not that you love one another. They've been commanded that before. Even Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 commanded them to love one another. Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 to 44 to love one another to love even their enemies. Matthew 22 verses 34 to 40 is the idea of Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This is not new. What's new is what he says next. Just as I have loved you. That's the new part. Look to Christ to learn what love is. And that is, no greater love has one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, as Jesus will tell them in the gospel account as well. Self-sacrificing love. That's how... That's how we are to love one another. And that's what you see in Acts chapter 2. If you want to follow up on this passage a little more, read Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. See how the apostles and the early disciples of the church, see how they lived together. See what their community looked like. And it was through that community of self-sacrifice as they held all things in common and sold what was needed to give to the poor and, and maintain them as well. And the Lord used that to add to their number day by day those who were being saved. The world saw the sacrificial love that Christians had for one another, and the Holy Spirit worked through that in order to grow his kingdom. All right, at this point I have to say, consider it a bonus time as we move into the fourth reading, John chapter 16, verses 12 through 22. Contextually, still the Passover feast, still the time of the Last Supper. If you ever wondered what did they talk about during that time they had that meal together, read John 13 through John 16. Those four chapters cover that time together. John 17 then will give us the high priestly prayer, and John 18 takes us out into the garden where the arrest of Jesus will occur. So I'm going to start with verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus has been teaching them many things. There are many more things he would like to teach them, but they can't understand them. They don't even understand the things he's already shared with them. So he's going to depart. He departs, as he said in John 15, so that he can send the Holy Spirit to them. And the Holy Spirit is the one who will teach them all things. It is the Spirit who works faith in us. It is the Spirit who brings us to repent of our sins. It is the Spirit who helps us to know who Christ is and know what his gifts for us are. The Spirit works through the Word of God to teach us all things. And so, Jesus will end up teaching them more through the work of the Holy Spirit, which is, perhaps we could even think about the rest of the New Testament that's going to be written at that point um, as part of this. Now, when by the time John writes this, reflecting on this, the rest of the New Testament has been written. His works, his books of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation are the last five books of the New Testament to be written, and much later than most of the rest of it is. As he's writing around 90 AD before he dies, the rest of it's written kind of in the late 40s until the early 60s. 
So the Spirit will not work on his authority, but instead will work by God's authority. He will speak what God gives him to speak. Now, God is, the Spirit is God, but God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God the Father is the head, um, and he is going to, the Spirit will reflect that to his creation. This is the way it is among us as well. We are not to speak what we want to speak. We are to speak what God gives us to speak, which is his word, to build up, to encourage one another, uh, to rebuke, reprove one another. Um, this is what we learn about the word of God in, in Timothy, that the scriptures are breathed out by God. They're profitable for teaching, rebuke, reproof, all sorts of things. So, the Spirit will glorify Jesus, verse 14. That is, the Spirit will lift up Jesus for us to see. We can see Christ. We can trust in Christ because the Spirit has made it so. I sometimes refer to the, the Trinity almost like a boomerang. Uh, it's a just an analogy. It falls short. But the Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. The Spirit points us to Jesus. Jesus restores us to the Father. And that's what we see in really the combined John text that we have together today. All right, second paragraph, 16 to 22. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. A little while, you will no longer see me as his death. And then a little while, and you will see me as a reference to his resurrection. So Christ's death, he's going to disappear. They won't be able to see him because he'll be buried in a tomb. But then he will rise again, and they will see him again for a little while uh, before he ascends into heaven. So... The disciples have no clue what he's talking about. They also bring up the phrase, I am going to the Father, that Jesus mentioned in chapter 14, verse 12 and 28. He's going to say it again in chapter 16, verse 28, but we don't get that far today. We don't know what he's talking about. So that just continues to prove what Jesus said at the start of this text, verse 12 and 13. The Spirit will have to teach them what Jesus means. So Jesus unpacks it for him a little bit, starting with truly, truly, which he says 25 times in John's gospel account. And then he refers to Good Friday. You will weep and lament, the world will rejoice. So the disciples are saddened on Good Friday when Christ is killed, but the world rejoices thinking that it has defeated an enemy. When reality is, it's the other way around. And so their sorrow will turn into joy on Easter as they realize what has happened that the enemy has not triumphed, that Christ is not dead, but that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, hallelujah. And this is a joy for the Christian forevermore. He compares it to the woman who gives birth, that when she is in labor, uh, things look dark, things are sorrowful, she's hurting. But once the baby's born, all of that like disappears as she holds that child in her arms against her chest and she just 
revels in the gift that God has given to her. And so it is, so it is for the disciple to see Jesus again, to know that he is risen from the dead. I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Indeed, they can't because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And that will never end. He has conquered death. Death has no dominion over him. And because he lives, we live and we will live forevermore. No matter what this world does to us, no matter what this world throws at the Christian, it cannot change this hope. The world has no say over the new heaven and the new earth. God has already promised it to you. Amen.